0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I am your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight I'm talking to Paradox designer Johan Anderson about the latest EU3 expansion, Divine Wind, how Paradox approach expansions, and their upcoming game, Sengoku. Johan, thanks for joining me. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into Divine Wind and uh, Paradox expansions, uh, I, I really wanted to ask about your favorite expansions. What are some game expansions that exemplify what you want from from an expansion? And you're not allowed to name anything by Paradox. Okay, that's a... Well, uh, considering I just... Uh, five
1: minutes before this call, I just finished playing my weekly raid night in World of Warcraft. I must probably say that they do pretty good expansions. Um, but... Yeah, I also like the old uh, Civilization for Civ Four. I thought uh, the Conquest was a brilliant expansion. Play the World was also, but I don't remember if that was Civ III or Civ IV. But it was also an awesome expansion. But I, I, I kind of like when you when there are multiple things in an expansion. I don't f- I don't find having uh, just new units, new uh, maps. That doesn't do it for me. I want like new mechanics. That's the important thing.
0: Okay, so what is it about um? Well, let's take those expansions you named, uh, World of Warcraft and the Civilization Four expansions. So, so what did they do that that what do they do that stands out to you as making them really special expansions?
1: Well, I guess first of all, it makes uh, the game new. I mean. It's... I don't want more of the same. I want a different experience. Like, if you're playing, let's say, World of Warcraft in a new Cataclysm expansion, you get to say, like, the world has changed, you get the new abilities for your character, and there's new things to do. I mean, it's it's a different mechanic thing. It feels like it's breathing new life into a, an expansion.
0: Um... But, yeah. but the experience at its heart is still very similar. I, I still hear, um, you know, my friends who play. Wow, uh, they still say much of the game is remains the uh, you know kill x number of monsters quests. Um, rating seems very much the same. Um, how how do you how do you keep how do you keep an old how do how do these games keep that old formula fresh? That's a good question. Uh... I guess, like, you still have to uh,
1: keep um, the, the the same... You have to, like, follow a f- formula, like, the game should be the same as it's always been, but it needs to have new things. Like... What do you, damn, I was wrong. It was not Civilization IV that had Conquest. It was Civilization III, right? Wasn't it?
0: Yeah, I thought I thought you just gotten the name wrong for um. Oh my god, their their name the name escapes me.
1: Yeah, conquest. That was uh, the new new one because that was the expansion I really really liked for Civilization because it changed so that you had like the new governments and the and the all the multiplayer thing that you could play like on the different maps that made it like the new. That they made like it was still the same game, but it was different, and you, you didn't feel like okay, I'm just uh, getting like five new units to get more uh, difference. It's, it's hard to explain.
0: Right. Well, you know, taking that over to uh, EU3, um, you know, so as as I play a uh, Divine Wind with the uh, Shogunate in Japan and. Uh, Particularly the way the Chinese government is handled, uh, it, you have introduced some new mechanics to the game. The, these nations control very differently now than their European counterparts. Um, so, how how hard is it to take an existing game? I mean, at this point, you've got you have a lot built up um, around the original design of EU3. A lot has been added. Um, a lot is you know accrued to that design. How hard is it to go back in and then? drastically revise the rules of how certain countries operate. Um uh,
1: it's n- not like design wise or technically uh hard to do but it's it's more like like what repercussions do we get and why do we want to do it. It's it's a bit different um with the wine wind the original concept for those change of countries was how can we make them feel more unique. Yeah uh, because let's face it, it's been a pretty much European-focused game. Europe, this right. Everything is uh, from the European aspect. When we had stuff like the Papacy, the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the entire Succession Wars thing, it's all very, very European-centric. But now we really had to look at, like, how do we do it to feel to, to try to capture the differences in in east asia and the the, the thing there like I, i'm focusing a little bit more in my mind on how we handled main compared to uh, japan because um china's always been the major problem in any great strategic game i mean what is the j- unifying Definition of China. It's huge. It's rich. It's centralized. It's powerful. Why didn't they conquer the world? They had all the advantages. If you just look at it uh, resource-wise.
0: So right, and it's, that, it's already hard enough to balance, uh, say, like Spain and France.
1: Yeah, and then then like, so what? Why why is it? Why didn't China conquer the world? Well, the difference is that for China, it's as we viewed it when we made the design is that uh China is a world, everything else around it are basically irrelevant small sideshows compared to what's in China you have like yeah, of course you have Japan and Korea, but even if they are major powerful countries in the world compared to China, they're very small and not very pop uh, not very big population in comparison so for the concept of uh, in China, it's in, in those time periods, it's more like uh, the internal affairs that is important, and that's w- why we designed the features for China like that.
0: Now, when when the AI is controlling uh, China, does it have to deal with the same with the same dynamics that the player has to? Uh, I mean, for, for those of you who haven't played uh, Divine Wind, um, well, I mean, John, w- could you explain a bit how uh, the Chinese government is modeled in EU3?
1: It's basically, uh, depending, there's three different factions. Uh, I'm not going to say them because I can't pronounce the words in English that good. Uh, but anyway, there's three different factions, and depending on if they are in power or not, you are limited in what you can do. Uh, Compared to other countries. So that, and you constantly have to manage and maneuver the faction that you want to be able to do certain things uh, to get them into power. Because only, you're not able to like fight offensive wars unless a certain faction is in power. Other factions are more for building up your country. So it's, and you don't have 100% control over who controls
0: the government. Now, how can you influence, um, the balance of power between these factions.
1: Uh, you can spend uh, like magistrates to uh, tell the, to tell them to join certain factions. Then you get a little percentage up on it. All the sliders you're doing strengthen them over time. There's events and uh, diplomatic actions and other things in the game that affects how they are increasing or decreasing.
0: So. For for a human player uh, controlling the Chinese, it be, it becomes very much about managing the, um, the politics of the imperial court. Um, but when when the AI takes over and is playing China, does the AI face the same challenges, or is it handled like any other nation from the AI's point of view? Uh,
1: the AI mostly handles it like. everything else. It runs on the same mechanics as the player, but there's not that much specific uh, Chinese AI that plans all that long-term. We realize that uh, it's a bit tricky to think about limits and long-term ways to go around limits in an AI. So, but, uh, short answer, yes, it runs on the
0: same uh, mechanics so the so the AI is also to some extent being limited by these uh, court factions yes, that's a good description. What would stop a player if, if I wanted to um if I wanted to take China and conquer the world um what w- what would stop me from favoring the aggressive faction over and over again and Expanding my empire that way, and just making the other factions irrelevant.
1: Well, in uh, Divine Wind, we also have this little thing that if you conquer something, uh, you're not getting everything in the province, because most buildings will be destroyed when you conquer something, so you have to slowly build up the economy. And the more promises you conquer, the higher costs for technology is, the higher the cost for stability, recovery is. So that if you conquer a bunch of things and don't build it up economically, it's just a drain for you in the long run. So you have to really do consolidation phases, expansion phases.
0: And if you're just keeping one faction in power, you're not able to do both. You know, b- before our show tonight, um, listener uh, Ritalin Gamer uh, posed a good question for you on Twitter. Um, he writes So, when are you going to stop nursing European Universalis 3 along with expansion packs and just call it European Universalis 4? Uh, that's actually a very good question. I mean, we keep.
1: EU is basically the game where. It's a game that most people in the office play in their spare time. I mean, we've got Victoria fans, we've got Iron fans, and so on. But E3 is... I mean, we still have a campaign at the office where we play multiplayer currently in the latest version. As some people have noticed, uh, that we keep making beta patches for it, adding features. Right. Uh, Yes, and... Well, and... But... I'm not sure when we'll end. It might be that this was the last expansion, it might be that it takes years until we do EU4. It really depends. We don't really plan that much ahead on which projects to do. It might be that the next game we do is EU4, and it m- or it might be that the next thing we do is an EU expansion, or it might be that we don't do any EU thing
0: at all for a long time. We <laughs> never know. Right, and that's kind of what interests me. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through the process a little bit—the conversations you have at Paradox when you are deciding um, what you're going to do next. Because I'm always amazed at how many projects seem to be going on, um, you know, at, at the studio. And I, I guess could you could you get into the decision-making process that you know—when do you guys decide? Okay, we're going to do another EU3 expansion, um, or when do you decide? Now we're going. Now it's time to do a sequel to Crusader Kings. How do these, uh, how do these conversations go? What what t- what tend to be what tend to motivate expansions?
1: To to be able to answer that, I need to like describe a little bit about how the studio operates first. Uh, a few years ago, we used to be a small in small t- team at the studio. We used to be seven people making most of the games, uh, basically having one person working on uh, uh, expansion concepts and the re- rest of the team working on the full games for a year. Now we expanded and uh, in the last few years and we have about... I think we're 16 or 17 right now in the studio. I can't keep counting on so large numbers. And we basically have three teams that are developing stuff in parallel. So we're like one group of people working on CQ2, another on Sengoku, and another on For the Motherland, which is the latest Hearts expansion. Um so So whenever one of those teams are about to finish with their current task, we have a bunch of, like, ideas that we keep on our internal wiki where we look into what do we want to do? What do we think is doable? um it's all, it's all, a lot depends on what what the team wants to do. And some are also, what do we think is economically viable with the budget we think we can do? I mean, we... Like when we did with Victoria 2, we did it in a slightly limited scope because it was a bigger gamble on on a project. But while an EU free expansion is uh, not that big of a gamble of uh, making the decision to do an
0: expansion on EU. One one of the, I notice when I when I look at the credits uh, for your games, uh, it it seems like. It seems like, at least at the top, um, you know, you and Chris King seem to be having input on pretty much everything that goes out the door. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I mean, do do these projects have, you know, real project leads? Or is it more of a collaborative process uh, that you guys negotiate among yourselves?
1: Uh, Our structure works like this, that we have each of these... uh Teams have their own uh, project leaders, which are not me or Chris, um, and the project leaders basically report to me. and Their job is to develop games on uh, the ideas that uh, me and Chris have. So. Um, it, it's, it used to be that we were like one team where I was doing most of the stuff and deciding, but now we have
0: separate project leads that are working on the projects themselves. So do you and... So who decide? So how do you decide what goes into an expansion? Uh, it... As I talked
1: about, we have this wiki basically where everyone who has an idea can go into... Uh, the repository for that game series and just write down ideas then when we decide upon like what to do uh we take a look at all these ideas uh talk talk through and get into like a document where and then we realize okay we have a bunch of like mid-level ideas or but we need some cool uh, killer app Ideas, and then Chris or me or whoever is involved in it sits down and works on actually coming up with the ideas, and then it ends up for that Chris has to do the actual work
0: of writing the design documents. So, a lot of these improvements that that come through these expansions. Um, now people who own earlier versions do not get some of these improvements. Um you know for instance you have a new you have a new uh, interface when when you have a new interface when it comes time to make peace with somebody. Yeah. Um you have a new interface in Divine Wind as opposed to earlier versions of EU3. Yeah. Um and and for a lot of these improvements correct me if I'm wrong but to get them you ha- you have to get the expansion to get some of these improvements.
1: Yes. Uh that's for two reasons basically uh, it's not viable to support multiple code bases that easily you need a much bigger team to handle that and I'm not sure it would be that cost effective but and also we want people to buy the latest uh, expansions and uh, because if they don't do it we don't get any money
0: right but I mean i have I have had um you know, we we've had uh, you know commenters at uh, for for three moves ahead. You know, mention paradox as you know the most caustic way I've heard of referring to it as is as uh, charging for the patch. Um, and I don't know is there is is there any pressure from customers to make some of the uh, you know interface improvements, uh, AI tweaks, make those retroactive applied to earlier versions.
1: Uh, if we had to do that like for EU and go back to multiple things, I think we would have probably have to actually charge money just for the patches because it costs a lot of money and time to sink in to do something on multiple projects and then it would really be pay
0: for patches which is not that good. right so so at this point um, you know EU3 is a heavily revised game. You know, you you, you still have EU three complete, and it isn't. Um, now there's there's much more EU three uh, beyond complete. There's uh heir to the throne and divine wind. Um, so at this point, you know, it, it does seem like you have probably made a sequel's worth of changes to the core game. Do you guys ever worry that, you know, through through steady gradual expansion, you are kind of stealing all your good ideas for a sequel? Uh.
1: Oops sometimes yes, but we also have, uh, we have a lot of good design ideas of what we would want to do with an EU4. Th- then again, if we ever do an EU4, it would probably be a lot of people that are pissed off because, oh, it's not everything that was in EU3, and it's different, and it's not doing the same thing, and we get uh, people like when we did, what was named the game, hotshire Iron 3, and people were saying, it's not the same as our 2. trying I'm not worrying about using up all ideas. I still have, uh, I don't know, how many pages on just one-line ideas for cool kick-ass features for EU expansions.
0: Right, and so you you describe that there, there's a wiki that you work from when you're when you're thinking of uh, when you're thinking of features. While while you're doing this, I mean, are you all, are you are you also setting aside a wish list for things that you just can't make work make work in EU three and would have to be a different game? Uh, not entirely,
1: but there, we have some notes on that. But I I'm not sure I can actually talk about any examples of that. The moment, right. but yes, we we always have notes on every like thing that we think is not stellar or we would
0: like to change, and so on in games. So, when when you roll out an expansion to one of your games, um, do you consider them all essential? Do you consider them all part of the complete experience, or do you view them as more, you know, optional optional add-ons for uh, for players who enjoy the game? Uh. I think they're kind of essential. I mean,
1: if we're looking at EU, what is it, five years since we originally released the first one? Uh, I mean, not the first expansion, but the original game. And um, we've been pretty much every year since we released an expansion. So, um, and compared to. I can't mention. I, I don't want to mention names, but let's take random sports games. You release a new one for like $50. Each year, we're instead giving people an expansion right. for twenty dollars that they're usually doing more
0: changes. So, you know, as as you expand EU three, um, how how much direction do you do you take from fans from from people on the uh, Paradox forums? It depends.
1: Sometimes people have like good ideas, and sometimes don't. They really don't, and it's a bit hard to like listen to. Uh, it's a little bit hard to listen and get some really good ideas because I can take one example: um, the feature that people craved and complained a lot about on the forums and demanded that it should be exactly like in youth Two was um, the historical monarchs. There, there were a large faction of people that said. Uh, Monarchs needs to be exactly like in EU2, you should get the historical Monarchs. So you spent probably a third of the development time on the Napoleon's Ambition expansion, just adding that one in. And then, nobody used it, and those that used it said, well, it sucks, it's just like EU2. So, listening to your fans are good at times, but sometimes I don't think people really know what they are asking for.
0: I was very interested to see uh, the Sengoku announcement coming on the heels of Divine Wind. And, you know, to start with, um, has has there been a shift in focus at Paradox to Japan and East Asia over the years, or did working on Divine Wind put you guys in mind of the Sengoku period?
1: I think... Part of it is kind of like our CEO Fred has lived in Japan and uh, we've had requests sometimes like people always been suggesting why don't you make a game in Japan by our fans and uh, by partners in Japan that have said well a game in Japan would be sell great in Asia and we're like yeah this sounds good and then we we're working on the CK2 things and we're saying uh, what we're learning on the Divine Wind development and realizing sometimes early last autumn that, hey, it would be a kick-ass game to do a uh, Crusader King style game, but in Japan.
0: Now, I was I was surprised because, um, you know, there seems to be so much excitement built up for Crusader Kings 2. Uh, I mean, first, is how, how closely related to Crusader Kings is Sengoku in terms uh, of design?
1: A little bit. I mean, there's the character focus. But the characters are rather handled differently. In CK it's more about the the dynastic thing and inheriting. You have these big, huge inheritance systems where you have to marry, etc. In uh, Sengoku it's more (coughs) about clans and your relation with your liege and your honor and Thing like that, but it's it's both characters and code-wise, they they reuse quite a lot of code there. But the actual gameplay focus is completely different in that one. But yes, uh, doing those two games at the same time, you get a lot of added uh,
0: technological synergies. Okay, so. Could you could you explain? Could you get a big into the difference a bit between this and and Crusader Kings? I, I saw that you uh, had an interview with Bill Abner uh, at Game Shark, yeah. um, which there'll be a link to at the bottom of the podcast. Um, but I was wondering if you could get a bit more into the concept of honor here. Um, you, that seems to be a very important point in uh, what's going to be driving the action of the game. Uh, so could you explain a bit what what you intend to do with honor and Basically, how you're going to represent uh, this period and this culture?
1: Uh, yeah, no, uh, I, I wish I knew the design by heart, but uh, anyway, uh, honor is, as in paradox games, we always had concepts like bad boy, relation, prestige, etc. Honor is more. It's more like um, it's a combination of prestige and. Bad boy in a way, and it's tied to a character and to his clan. So that when when you do certain things, like um, betraying your leech or overlord, that's not really honourable. Your honour drops. Uh, doing certain things increases your honour. And you really, really want to keep as high honour as possible so you're able to do the deeds you need to do. The problem here or not a problem but the challenge for a player is that if you really drop your honor a bit too low, you will be forced to do certain actions that are not always advantageous to you because you have to gain your honor up again because if you get if you get your honor if you lose your honor entirely it's game over. okay. So it's 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 kind of like a point system on the prest- and combining prestige and bad boy from previous paradox style games. <laughs>
0: when I when I saw the Sangoku trailer, um, my first thought was, "Oh my god, they, they're they're basically trolling Creative Assembly at this point, aren't they?" Um, so uh, you know, w- would would Sangoku be happening if? would the, would you would would you have felt the time was ripe for Sengoku uh if Creative assembly weren't going back to Shogun Two
1: to be honest, we had actually started on the development when we saw the Shogun Total War, and we we're like, uh let's hope they're not gonna release it in the same month we are planned releasing Sengoku <laughs> <laughs> Oh there I mean, I mean yeah, we have uh hired new graphical programmers. And we've been working hard on making the games look better and improving our engine, but uh, I'm not that comfortable at of like releasing the games in the same month because we will drown in in a in a comparison to Creative Assembly, probably. It, it does
0: it does occur to me though as as, as I as I look at these games. Um... To some extent, I, I think Creative Assembly can can do a game about almost anything they want because uh, their games are always very beautiful. Uh, they always have a great deal of excitement built up around them. Uh, but at the same time, it does seem like there's a difficulty in... In finding new territory for strategy, um, I'm thinking you know, creative. Yeah, you know, Crusader Kings focuses on the Middle Ages. Um, creative Assembly's done that as well. Uh, Victoria covers, um, well, you know, the the 19th century and you know the the Great Empire, you know, imperialism in that period. Um, and these are these are all stories people know. And it, it seems that, to some extent, these these are all topics that have been that have been covered very well. Uh, by by many strategy games over the years, and now what we're left with are you know you need to find new territories uh, for strategy. Uh, so you, so you get a you get an expansion like Divine Wind that focuses on Asia, uh, which never really got its due. Uh, you get Sengoku, um, but you know my my question is these these are stories that are not well known uh, to to many Westerners. Um, They're they're not stories that have a great deal of, you know, it's very difficult even to find a good history of the Sengoku Sengoku period uh, in the English language. Um, So, how do you go about making these fresh strategy games for periods that kind of have no constituency? That's a good question.
1: Uh, Well... I'm not sure how to unselect one properly. Um, it it's you you're obviously gonna make stuff that are probably because you we're developing it with the, because we're all westerners we're uh Swedes and uh, Scots at the team so we're we're obviously biased by the European eye so we're we're designing the games that are in other, t- in other uh, parts of the world, as we view it there. But we're also trying very hard in the development of Sengoku to actually have a lot of Japanese people helping out with actual research of data and so on. Um, that's, I mean, we've always been, have a good reputation for having really, really deep databases with historical correct details. Um, we're aiming to have that, one for sengoku as well but and i was just reading while i was waiting for this conversation to start today uh, about uh, in the beta form for the sengoku with all these uh, japanese uh, japanese fans that we have in the, in the beta that are like uh, writing comments about which character you which and they're actually having all these japanese names and they're debating Like, there was one name of one character I've never heard of, and they're actually saying that in all Western translations, it's been a spelling error from one character there. And in these major things in the, I don't remember what the book was, and it's, so people are actually using everywhere misspelled names for famous characters because of some typo somewhere in some book, because most people that are looking into these Japanese things are not using Japanese sources, but, like, Western sources that check them
0: once. Now, do you think, do you think that is going to pose an obstacle for people getting into these games? Uh, because, I mean, I certainly know that whenever I come to a new Paradox game, I tend to go with somebody... Some with some country with some faction that I know fairly well, and I, I think that that I think that goes a long way to easing the learning curve. Uh, it certainly has for me. I suspect it has for others. Um, do, do you worry that you know as as your your focus shifts eastward, that players are going to have. A harder time getting into it or do you think that it's probably going to be paradox fans buying these games anyway and they can figure out your systems uh, uh, by now
1: we've been working a little bit on making this game easier to get into because it's it's easy to focus it and have this uh, not get everything in your face at once when you have this game design that we have here that shit, I can't tell that much about it yet, because then PR kills me. Uh, anyway, um, so, uh, but that's one aspect. But the, the other one is that, let's face it, we ha- there's plenty of, like, fantasy, strategy games, where, like, what was the name of that one uh, that Stardock did last summer? Oh, Elemental. Elemental. Um, yeah, and, I mean, they didn't have, like, this standard, uh, char- standard uh, known... They had, what was it, the Empire and the... There were, like, two different factions you could play, basically.
0: Uh, Right, there, there, there were two... There there were basically a good guy and bad guy side, and then there were a bunch of little yeah. kingdoms.
1: Yeah, and it, it's kind of like, you had to learn, like, a new world to, to get into it, because it wasn't the standard archetype orcs, elves, dwarves, or... Or French versus Germans, or Nazis versus uh, commis or any of those things that we that we all know. But so, but still, I think that if if you complete, if you're not 100% detached, it's probably it might be like a bit harder to get into those things. But when you do, you could probably also view them as a generic fantasy. I mean. I don't even know all the names of the various factions in Japan, and there's fifty different clans or one hundred and fifty different uh, what are they called? Kuru something rulers you could actually play in the game, and they could be like fantasy names for
0: right. So you know, you you mentioned that uh, that, that you're that you have uh, you know fans in Asia. Sort of commenting as, as you're working on these games, uh, you have them, you know, making suggestions and contributing some of their knowledge, you know, and I and I guess, you know, I, I'm interested in how Paradox Games, uh, what sort what sort of following Paradox has over in Asia.
1: Oh, that's uh, um, we were told once that oh, your games are very popular in Korea. they they lots of people play them, and we're like, yes. How do you know that? We only sold like 10 copies in Korea. Oh, yeah, everyone pirates it. But <laughs> Oh dear. No, but actually in Japan, we have a local distributor there, Cyberfront, really 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 good to work with. <coughs> and they localized the game into Japanese and to sell nicely and so so we have a pretty decent fan base in Japan.
0: And have they been have they been sort of pushing you to uh give Japan its due?
1: Um, i guess so um i think that this will be that what they've always wanted
0: well i think i'm i think that about wraps it up um i mean do you have any uh, you know do you have any do you have any final thoughts on uh expansions um you know what what you what you try to accomplish uh, any any parting wisdom
1: well we w- we want to make expansions that we want to play ourselves. That's the main goal. I mean, we play our own games and like, we're talking when people enter the office on Monday morning and I notice a bunch of people are standing at the desk and uh, while drinking the morning coffee and they're debating like, oh uh, some economy stuff in Victoria 2 because three different people of the team had spent the Sunday just playing the game, and it—that's the kind of thing we want to do, we, because we're all people that play our own games, and we want to make expansions that make the game, that makes us want to play the game even more ourselves.
0: Right. Well, that—that makes me ask, though. I mean, you know, it, it seems like you, you you guys have worked so long with EU three. How is it? <laughs> I can't imagine how is it how is it these games are still how how is it these games are still fresh for you guys um you know after after spending all this time working on these games uh what is it what what keeps it from becoming just enough what what is it that keeps it from becoming a job that you that you're that you're sick of? Oh, that's a good question.
1: Uh, I I think there's three different things. We keep switching around working on various games, and then sometimes you get back to, uh, let's say, EU, and you haven't touched it for like half a year or so. And we keep rotating like which multiplayer game we play at the office, and... When it's also the thing like when you're playing eu free competitively with like 16 to 17 players in with a session every week you get really really inspired to work on it even though if you've been stuck with doing EU games
0: for 12 years right you know that that actually it, it turns out you have a couple more questions then when playing these multiplayer games uh, and, and rotating what it is you are playing you know you, you, you say it's inspiring I mean does the competition make you scrutinize your own design a little more and find changes you want to make
1: yeah we we keep having people go we're having like the Tuesdays are from four o'clock to six o'clock we actually play the multiplayer session, and then a bunch of people go out uh, having beer afterwards and discussing it, and so it ends up that uh, sometimes during lunch on Wednesday morning, a lot of people have uh, written update emails going like, "Oh, I fixed this bugs, and or I did these tweaks and changes to the game." I mean, l- last week I spent. The Wednesday just adding new map modes because, and I needed them for for managing my huge Spanish empire. In right, player. and you keep what what we've realized the most though is, and we've noticed is more and more things that we add are interface things, because when it's only when you really play it competitively that you notice where you when you need to. Improve how
0: you play the game. So, are you able to uh, are you able to roll these changes out on the fly to games you have ongoing? Um, you know, changing the way the game works, or do you kind of have to periodically stop and say, "Well, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong," and we're going to change this, and then we're going to start a new game and see how it works with our changes? Uh, sometimes.
1: Uh... Let's say when we did uh, Victoria 2 for example uh, I think we restarted multiplayer the multiplayer sessions there quite a lot of times because we changed stuff in the setup etc but for EU3 we had now we pretty much lived with the same campaign since uh, like three or four weeks before we actually uh, before the game was actually ready so which was good.
0: So to uh, so to work at Paradox, you 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 have to love those games because that that it sounds like that is, uh that that's your, that's your design room in many ways is playing them.
1: Yeah, I mean if you don't like the games you're doing, it's gonna be they're not gonna be as good as they are if you like doing them.
0: Right, but I mean would wouldn't there also be a desire to be finished with the game and. Well, I, I suppose that's with so many with so many teams and so many projects going on at once. Um, I suppose you, you do get a chance to be finished with a game. Yeah, I mean, and then no, you go back to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, l- let's face it. We thought the EU three was uh, pretty fine before we did expansion. We thought we once thought, well, this is complete. Um, then we're like, okay, we're gonna do an expansion. Let's see what the fans want, and they wanted EU three and. We're like, yeah, well, we have lots of ideas. Let's make
0: one. So I think that'll I think that'll wrap it up for tonight.
1: Okay, cool.
0: Thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I know it's incredibly late over there, so uh, thanks for going to the trouble. Thank you. It Was
1: a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to hearing this.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation with Johan Anderson. Before I bring the show to a close, I wanted to announce our Pax East Three Moves Ahead Meetup. We will be enjoying the Sinatra Sunday Brunch at Lucky's Lounge, 355 Congress Street, at 11 a.m. on March 13th. It is just a couple blocks north of the convention center. Now, tables are filling up fast near the convention, so I would ask that you please RSVP either in the Flash of Steel comment thread for this episode, or by emailing me directly at zachnyr at gmail.com. That's Zachny, Z-A-C-N-Y-R, at Gmail. Please let me know if you'll be attending so I can tell the restaurant how many they can expect. I will, of course, be posting the info on Flash of Steel and my own blog, Robzacne.com, and you can always hit me with questions on Twitter where I am, rather unimaginatively, RobZachny. To recap, Three Moves Ahead meetup, the Sunday of PAX East, 11am at Lucky's Lounge. I will be there. Julian will be there. The brunch is named after Sinatra. What more could you possibly desire? So that does it for our show tonight. Thanks once again to Michael Hermes for producing this episode and to Johan Anderson for joining me and to you for listening. Until next week, good night.